if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I have not love. I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I listened like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been known. Fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. First Corinthians chapter thirteen. Kane family, thank you so much. Catherine, thank you so much for reading the scriptures for us today. When you're a pastor and you've never led in a pandemic before, um, and you are living in a time of social upheaval and great angst, um, disillusionment can come pretty easily. And so what you do is you actually reach out um, to your friends to your colleagues, to your mentors, but also you reach back to other entities, to other people, to other times in which um, people who've gone before you uh, have, have lived through certain things, things like that. And you also pay attention to those around you. And when God uh, has two 
friends and colleagues of yours, Susan Nash, namely, and Rob Alexander, uh, one in evening prayer and one in a meeting, uh, referenced the same quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, um, who was trying to lead amid incredible social upheaval, including World War II. You're supposed to pay attention. And so I want to read a portion of that for you this morning. It talks about disillusionment as a gift from God. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He doesn't abandon us to those rapturous experience and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. Only that fellowship which faces disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. The sooner the shock of this disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. And if not, sooner or later, that community will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into a Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and be, must be banished if genuine community, community is to survive. Y'all, I'm a, I'm a romantic idealist at the core. And he says, he who loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of that very community. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Reminds me of a book called Well-Intentioned Dragons that I commend to you. It also reminds me of what my friend Mark Upton called um, the relational prosperity gospel. Mark says that growing up, he experienced a a lot of distance and not feeling fully connected to his family, to his community, to a lot of his friends. And when he converted, and if I remember this correctly, actually converted at Wake and I was a part of this church's ministry. When he converted, he got involved in young life and in this church, and um, he started to experience this, this, this uh, community, this relational um, beauty that he hadn't experienced before. And then he got to amp it up because he was going to be a church planter, the lead pastor of a community that he birthed. And about three or four years into it, he coined the term relational prosperity gospel because in a dark time, he realized and he admitted to himself that there was way too much of him that was following Jesus because he wanted a flourishing family and a thriving community more than he wanted Jesus or the real thing. And y'all, this applies first and foremost to us and our own families, but also to our own churches, the way we treat Redeemer and others in it. And it's as for pastors as much as it is for congregants, We often want to live in a fantasy of fellowship, but not in the real thing. And at our worst, we don't just want it. We demand it. We demand it of God, and we demand it of others. 
And that's when we get really noisy about stuff, when we withdraw and, 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 and hide and become nothing in the fellowship. And like all prosperity gospels, a relational prosperity gospel takes a good thing and makes it the main thing. And in the most insane step, makes it the only thing. This must be what's being experienced in Corinth with all their issues and divisions, with all their difficulties. And yet I want us to cheer up because the scriptures today, the beginning of this passage, um, gives us, addresses all of us. Um, and I want to kind of go through the fact that Paul kind of gets us all here. He kind of uh, adjusts uh, our thinking about all the types of people that there are in a church. And um, so I'm just going to go through this first, and I've, I've come, come up with some, some funny little phrases for each of them. But what I want to do is help us find ourselves in these. So he starts off, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I'm a sage of spirituality, if you will, these are the mystics and the prayer warriors. These are the folks who have an intimacy with God that I both long for and am a bit scared of. And they can dig into the, the really dark and hard places of their souls and the souls of others. And then you have those with prophetic powers, right? The prophets of power, people who can see what's either next or what's underneath. They get where the church or individuals or communities um, or families need to repent. And they're usually full of courage and insight, the prophets, right? Often um, not super well liked either. They are God's, they attend to God's disruptive side. And yet they're, they have a warrior spirit that fights for, for righteousness, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, these are the dons of doctrine, the biblical gurus and the theological masters, the Presbyterians, those who God gives insight to his word. They get both the warp and woof and the jot and tittle of scripture and their hearts are burdened and inflamed with truth. And then there's those who have all faith, even ones that can remove faith that can remove mountains. I call these people the titans of trust. Like the prophets, they are filled with courage. But they have this amazing hope. And not, it's not an optimism, it's a hope. And when they look at the world, they see Jesus, uh, a, a, a filter of what Jesus is doing in the world everywhere. And they, they, they think God and expect God to do all, thing, all kinds of things that what normal people wouldn't imagine. They believe that God's in control of everything and that that control is moving towards his purposes. And then, if I give all I have, these are the champions of compassion, the, the, the ministers of mercy, those not just with the gift of giving, but with the gift of giving until it hurts. They see the poor or the sick or the outcast or the marginalized, and then they give their lives, they give their, their attention, they give their checkbooks and their calendars to what they see. And lastly, if I deliver up my body to be burned, these are the radicals of the revolution, right? The reformers uh, in the kingdom of God, those who risk life and limb for justice and truth. And, and they take an activist role in the kingdom, challenging the high places, never mincing word about words about what Jesus' reign will look like whenever evil shows its head. And they don't even count the cost of the gospel. They just throw themselves to the work of bringing shalom in the world. 
So you're in there somewhere. I'm in there somewhere. Or our paths cross back and forth from some of those things at different times in our lives or even different times of the day. But there isn't a single Christian that Paul misses here. I can imagine in Corinth, their friends or family members, you know, kind of doing the spiritual elbow of, hey, you need to pay attention to this. And 10 seconds later, they're like, oh, but that one got me. And died it in the next breath. But what I love about this spectrum of discipleship is that none of them are really put down. They all represent a part of the life and the mission of those who follow Jesus. All of this is commended work in the scripture somewhere. And yet the hard part is, and I got this from Chris earlier, that this presumes that you can look a whole lot like Jesus and still miss the whole thing. It's this one thing that we'll get to. But he says, without this thing called love, that we are a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, we profit nothing or are nothing. And here's where the gong comes in. So Chris is going to come over because he's a professional percussionist and play the gong. And I, not the professional percussionist, I'm going to play the cymbal. Oh, there, you can see it. That's great. Um, And so show them how the gong's supposed to sound first. By the way, Lou and Peg Jackson, thank you so much for letting us borrow this. And everybody needs to know, Wendy knows everyone in Forsyth County. All right, go ahead. shouldn't insult people, professional percussionists. Oh, sorry. See, that sounds beautiful and wonderful. But what he's describing is something more like this. Special thanks to my assistant, Trip Sanders, for putting the bottle cap over the, uh, the camera. Okay. <laughs> Lovelessness, even with all that he just described, is only noisy or nothing. Noisy or nothing. And all of the Christian types, if you will, can live in lovelessness. That's his point in the beginning. And when he moves us to the middle, after he's kind of got all of our attention, he starts to begin to shape our view of love. And what he does in shaping our view of love is that he both describes it and sets it above or maybe at the center of all of the things that we do and live. He describes the animating fire of the kingdom of God, the essential characteristic of Christ and those who follow Christ, the gold and the goody of the gospel. And he says, it is love. Now, I want us to listen to this part contemplatively, and I'm going to read the whole middle section there. And the first time I read it, I want you just to follow and yield to the Spirit The one who loves us illumines us and shapes us in this. Remember, this is God's living word. And the Hebrew says it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Y'all, 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage we use at weddings. It is not a wedding passage. It is not sentimentality. It's discipleship. It's not a hallmark card. It is actually the hallmark of Christ. This is how we live in real relationship, even after the fabrications of our mind, the, 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 the dream worlds we try to pretend. So let's read through it slowly. Love is patient and kind and does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How did you experience that? Where did the Spirit work in you, even just a little bit? I can tell you this, that this week, this has been um, a mirror of, of some of my mishaps and missteps and my, my, my misapplied zeal. Even line by line, the Spirit has churned in me about patience my heart wants to quit all too often, especially when in conflict, and ironically, when in conflict surrounding the gospel itself. Kindness. Y'all know I can be rough around the edges in word and in heart. Envy and boasting, two sides of the same jealous and judgy coin. I'm usually too smart or restrained to do this out loud, but it is there, and it is there way too often. Arrogance, I read this on a meme. I often don't want to hear your opinion. I want to hear my opinion coming out of your mouth. Rude. Sometimes I act more like a shock jock than a shepherd. Insist on my own way. Sometimes I don't know the difference or struggle the difference between my role as a visionary and a leader and my sin as an intemperate zealot. Irritable? How about we just not ask Amanda or the children anything about that? And let's just say I'm glad that my dogs cannot testify against me in the court of law. Resentful? I've way too often compiled the record of wrongs against me. Rejoicing in truth and not wrongdoing. I often would rather win than seek what is true. And at my worst, sometimes I have a sinister, sinister glee about other people's fallings and failures. Bears all things. These are days in which I am so easily overwhelmed. And sometimes I simply avoid or ignore situations or people because I just seems too much to bear. Believes all things. I way too often do not give benefit of doubt to those I love and I rush to judgment. 
hopes all things. Anxiety and despair are often my bedfellows that I invite in and I let cynicism reign in my dreams. Endures all things. Maybe my fundamental temptation is to escape it all or fade away. Denial and abdication as my colleagues. They're easy daydreams for me. But that's after the third and fourth reading of these things. I have to be honest with you, friends. At first, I didn't see these things clearly at all, which is why I'm asking us to read it contemplatively over and over again, and we'll do again, even in this sermon. My first response was really sadness and longing. I wanted to experience this from those around me. I want to feel this kind of love from friends and colleagues in my own church. I want to enjoy the great benefits of life in the kingdom. And I don't think I was only being pouty, though there was some of that. And I don't think I was only being complainy, though that reared its head. It was more wishing that the world and my world were different and that I had a tangible experience of the love that Paul here sets above at the center of things, to be loved like this. And then, as the Spirit is apt to do, he nudged and whispered the truth in my ear and in my heart, Georgia, you do have one who loves like this. Before I knew it, I found myself scouring through the Scriptures of the way that God loves like this. And so I'm going to read back through this time. I'm going to add verses that describe God at every single one of these phrases. Love is patient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as someone counts slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but each come to repentance. 2 Peter 3. And kind, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9. Love does not envy or boast, but Jesus made no reply, says Matthew 26, not even to a single charge, and it amazed the governor. It is not arrogant, Philippians 2. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or rude. The Lord our Redeemer said, But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you. In Isaiah 54. In Isaiah 55, he does not exist, well, he does not assist on his own ways. Well, God does kind of do, does insist on his own ways, but not for his own ego's sake, but because of love, because his ways are above our ways. Isaiah 55. It's not irritable. irritable. Psalm 103 the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's not resentful. Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Repay us according to our iniquities. For as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in love. His works are perfect and his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he, Deuteronomy 32. Love bears all things. Come unto me, all who you labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, Matthew 11. 
He believes all things. Romans 2, there is no partiality in God. He hopes all things. Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. And Psalm 89, he endures all things. I have made a covenant with my children, with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, and I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. So here we have it. In the beginning, Paul gets us all. In the middle, love is set above, and God is that love that is set above. And at the end, he talks about it never ending. In verse 8, love never ends. When I first read this passage, most of my life I was like, I thought love never ends was the last of the attributes. It's actually not. It's the beginning of the next section. It's rightly versified this time, and I love it. Because the middle section describes the love of God that um, calls us to this kind of love um, and yet um, exposes this love of God that he has for, him, for us. But the encouragement in this passage is not that alone. But that very love is the love that doesn't let us go. That this love he's described is a love that we live and move and grow in and will be without end. This love never ends. That's what all that talk about the future stuff is. The prophecies are gone. The tongues are gone. I don't know what it means, but knowledge is gone. And then the already not yet, right? We know in part, we prophesy in part, but there'll be a day when the partial is surpassed by the perfect. And then it becomes very personal and it's in this kind of growth uh, statement again. He talks about growing up as a child, not seeing easily, not knowing fully. And then he directs us to the promise of it all that one day we will see him face to face, that we will know because we are fully known. Paul is orienting us back to reality that Jesus has initiated this love with us, that he sustains us in this love, and he promises to keep us in the love. It's the animating reality, not just of our lives, but the life we have in him. And it's without end. A bit of a funny story about this passage. I've already told you that I'm a diehard romantic idealist, which either makes you silly or depressed. And so one day, I must have been in the depressed state, I looked at Amanda after four years of dating, having told her I loved her, which I did, and I had been convicted by this verse and this chapter, and I looked at her after four years of dating again and go, I'm not sure I ever, I, I'm not sure I love you. And because all I was doing, and I felt really noble and unburdened by that, but really it was just folly because what it was doing was saying that the only way this love works in this passage is if I can perform it. And what it wasn't doing is taking into account that love never ends and that I am fully known and that it promises me to be able to grow in this love. And that it's already got me. And it won't end. Amanda had a few choice words to say about that. And um, we might've broken up or not. I don't, we'll talk about that later. But, um, but what I want to do for that is if this, you read this verse and this chapter and it, it only is about your lack and not about the eternal long suffering of Jesus, then you're not getting the full picture. It is about our lack and we must repent to it, but we repent to it knowing that it has us, that is a love that will not let us go. So when it comes to patience, 
Y'all, God is not wringing his hands with me or us, Redeemer, if we stumble all over each other with any trouble we have. He loves us. Kindness, his long-suffering with our folly and our finiteness and our fallenness, he loves us. Now, he does not envy, but he, he does boast. But Jesus boasts of the Spirit's work in us, the Father's shaping of us after his own image. Because he loves us. Arrogance. He is the one who is full of truth and righteousness. The only just one. And he doesn't hold anything against us. Rude. God's not grumpy. He delights in us. Insist on his own way. Well, yeah. But he does it for our good, as I said. He makes his ways, our ways, and our ways, his ways, and we become grateful for it because he loves us. Irritable, his wrath is gone, and we live under the reign of grace because he loves us. Resentful, y'all, Jesus isn't bitter about our struggles and our sin. He enjoys to forgive us. He's committed to forgetting it and forging newness of life and renewed love in us. Rejoicing in the truth and never rejoicing in wrongdoing. He wants to bring truth and is bringing truth to our innermost parts. And he's eating up all the falseness and wrong because he loves us. Bears all things. He doesn't give up on us because of our idolatry or insolence. He loves even stiff-necked people like me and you. Hopes all things. He has made way for the broken and the beat up and the people who beat up and break because he loves us. Endures all things. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let 1 Corinthians 13 convict us of our lovelessness. Let us not turn our ear from the noise or pretend that we can be nothing at times. But don't let it convict us without revealing the lover of our souls. And most importantly, do not let it be read without love never ends. That God is saying to us, this very type of love is the love I give you. And I will never, never, ever, ever let you go. Amen.